Welcome to episode number 13 of Slaying It With Santa Rob. And this is the first episode of the month of August. I picked a very special guest to kick off this month with. He's the original bass player from the band Petra. He's Mr. John DeGroff. So let's get into Slay and Slay It on Slaying It With Santa Rob. All right, everybody, welcome to Slaying It with Santa Rob. This is episode 13, and we are with the original bass player of the band Petra, and he's also got his own group right now called Salt. Plus, he's doing another project with with Greg Hogue from Petra, and he's going to tell you about that uh, a little bit later. So let's welcome to the sleigh and get ready to slay it with John DeGroff. Welcome, John. Hey there. I'm Lucky 13, huh? Well, All right. well, I'm not superstitious. It, but, it, it's uh, only right that you're number 13. Yeah, I'm bass player. You know, that's right. <laughs> I get it. At, le- at least you're not the drummer. <laughs> and that's a, that's a topic for a whole nother podcast. We won't go there. Okay. <laughs> anyway, John, thanks for being here. I know there's a lot of uh, Petra fans out there and classic Christian rock fans that want to know about the early days, what you're doing now, and uh, what we can expect from Salt in the future. So... Let's start with the, let's go back to the early Petra days. Why don't you tell us how you got hooked up with Bob Hartman and the guys in Petra? Okay, well, um, I know we probably talked about this during your, um, the uh, Petra fan conventions that you had. And then we also just did a interview with, uh, I can't remember the guy's names, but they had this thing called Project 312 or something like that. We did an interview with uh, the four original guys, Hartman, Hogue, Glover, and myself. And the thing lasts for like an hour and a half. And we actually, um, we had, uh, it was all computer, you know, like a Zoom, a massive Zoom call. And it's on my, um, it's on my YouTube page. So it's, uh, it's there if you want to sit through an hour and a half of uh, four old guys, uh, challenging each other's memories it's it's kind of entertaining but i'm uh going okay all the way back i'm from a little town called west unity ohio which is 50 miles due west of toledo ohio it's where ohio indiana and michigan bumped together on the map bob hartman is from a town called Bryan, ohio which is same area Bryan was the county seat of our county and a uh, slightly bigger town than West Unity. And Bob is four or five years older than me. And he was always kind of a local guitar star. Uh, we'd all go see Bob play in whatever band he was, you know, whatever he had currently. And, <clears throat> pardon me, after, after he became a Christian, that kind of changed a lot of things. And it kind of brought, uh, it brought a lot of us in, into the kingdom through uh, a Bible study that was part of uh, an early coffee house in the Bryan area called The Attic. Bob was, uh, Bob was part of that. And I was still in high school when I started playing with Bob. He was already in college, and I think going on his third or fourth year of college. And we had a very short-lived band called Rapture. I think it lasted maybe six months or so, did a few gigs, and that was pretty much it. Um, but during that period of time, we actually also met Greg Hogue. I went over to Bob's house one day, and here's this guy um, just shredding. It's called shredding now, but uh, back then he was just playing a Les Paul through a Marshall and just going, just going berserk on it. And Greg, if you see him now, he had when I met him, he had hair down to his waist. And he was introduced to Bob through uh, a married couple that was coming to the Bible studies that were at Bob's house. And during the uh, summer of 1972, I graduated high school in May of 72. I wasn't really clear what I wanted to do with my life. I had originally thought about uh, going to uh, Ohio University or in Athens, Ohio, to study journalism. And I missed the... Um, um, Oh, you know, uh, where you apply for college. I missed the date for that. And we had been going to the Adams Apple in Fort Wayne to uh, the coffee house over there to see some Christian concerts and just kind of 
be with other believers. And I found out they had a thing called Christian Training Center. So since I missed the chance to go to college in Ohio, I started going to Christian Training Center. Well, right after I moved to Fort Wayne, which would have been um, just late August, early September of 72, Bob had started working with Greg uh, prior to that, a month or so before that. They, the two of them moved over and, and got an apartment together. And it was Greg who talked Bob into playing uh, playing rock and roll because the, the band that I had with, with Bob, uh, when it broke up, Bob kind of kind of felt like, well, maybe the Lord can't use rock and roll after all. And he wanted to do an acoustic thing. And Greg basically twisted his arm and said, no, no, we, we got to play rock and roll. We can do this for the <laughs> Lord. And they had... Uh, they, they were looking to put a band together. The first night that I was in Fort Wayne, the very first night I met Bill Glover, he had seen Bob and I play in Rapture at one of the few gigs that we actually did, so he knew who I was. And just <clears throat> through the school uh, called Christian Training Center and through Calvary Temple and the Adams Apple, which I know some of you have heard about this uh, a whole bunch of times, we all just kind of got together and started playing and... There were one or two songs that ended up on the first Petra album that Bob had already written you know, way before Petra. And, well, that's just kind of it. We found a found a beat-up old house that we could rent cheaply uh, just north of where the church was. And now that house is gone. I think there's a furniture store or something in its place. But I called it Petra Manor, and it, 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 was, <laughs> it should have been condemned. It was your typical band house. But uh, it worked for us. So, and uh, just just curious, are, this is probably a long shot, but are there any recordings or any Rapture recordings or promo posters no. in existence? There might be a promo poster or two out there somewhere, buried somewhere in somebody's closet, but no recordings. No recordings. No. And uh, we, Bob had only just started writing songs at that point, and I think we did two or three of his, and uh, we did like uh, Spirit of the Lord or uh, uh, what's the Clapton one um, from Blind Faith? Uh, and if you hadn't have asked me, I could have told. Yeah, you. now I, I'm I'm. I have every Blind Faith uh, song in my head going. Yeah, my head okay. Right now. Well, that's all. We did a version of that, and I think we did um, maybe a Larry Norman tune or two, just whatever we could come up with because. Now, I've said this before in in the um, Petra Fan Convention things, that Christian music at that period of time, 1972, early 70s, it consisted largely of what was in your hymn book, Southern Gospel, and church musicals, a lot of which were written by a guy named Ralph Carmichael, who wrote some really good stuff. And he worked a lot with Kurt Kaiser. There just yeah. wasn't much in the way of Christian rock. There was some stuff coming out of Southern California, but it wasn't uh, as well organized, and they weren't national acts at that point. And a lot of people wonder, well, who was the first Christian rock album? Who put out the first Christian rock album? I don't know, but I, I did a little research on this. And in the mid-1960s, there were two bands from Britain. There were two guys, Jonathan and Charles, who did like a Simon and Garfunkel thing, who did a Christian album. And there was another band called The Pilgrims out of Britain who did a Christian album. And I think there might have been a small handful of others. But here's the thing. This is mid-1960s. There were some other uh, things happening coming out of Britain that sort of overshadowed everything else. Right. So it's kind of uh, it's kind of hard to even find those albums. I think they're out there. They're real collector's items. But as to when the first Christian rock, first Christian bands came out, I would have to say mid-1960s. And just starting at the beginning of what everybody called the Jesus Revolution, early 69, 70, um, it would have been that time frame when people in the U.S. started doing stuff. And I, I saw something recently that uh, the first Ichthus Festival was in 1969 and held in Kentucky, I right. believe. Yep. But once again, there was another little event held in upstate New York that sort of overshadowed everything else in 1969. Right. So, 
And, and I know a lot of people think that all the Jesus music came out of Southern California with Love Song. Well, Love Song probably was the biggest and most popular at the time. But while they're doing their thing in Southern California, there was a whole Jesus people movement happening, well, in the Midwest, right here in Indiana. Yeah, yeah, there was. I mean, Love Song was the first, I guess you could say, big or even use the word mainstream to have something to kind of hang it on. They're the first big mainstream Christian rock band. And I remember seeing them. There was this thing called, uh, uh, I think it was called Discovery 72 or something. It was a Billy Graham crusade held in Dallas. It was just oh, gigantic. Expo. Expo. Yeah, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm getting old. I can't remember. <laughs> I'm doing good to remember my name, address, and phone number. But um, I actually saw a love song. Okay. And when they first started, they were kind of like, if you're familiar with the Eagles, the Eagles were more of a country rock right. band when they first started. And that's kind of what Love Song was like. They weren't real heavy. They were kind of uh, laid back, incredible good musicians, but just a slightly different style of music. They weren't really rock. Right. But they were the first band to really gain any attention. And Well, and that's... As, we, as I mentioned, that a lot of that music was popular because of, well, Chuck Smith and the whole movement coming out of California. But while that's happening in California, Petra and Honey Tree, and I'm sure there's countless others in the Midwest, were starting their own thing. Well, you talk about Midwest, well, I, this just popped into my head. Phil Kagi. Oh, Phil. I the, actually yeah. got to see Phil Kagi play... With the original Glass Heart. And that would have been at, early 70s. At a bar in Toledo, Ohio, called the Agora, in, in Ohio in the early 1970s. If you were 18, you could go to a bar. Well, I turned 18 in September of 1971. I had to stop and think. And was old enough to go see Phil Kagi with Glass Heart. And I remember four of us cramming ourselves into a Volkswagen Beetle, and Hartman was one of them. We kept hearing these stories about, why well, you got to check out this guy named Phil Kagey. He's just brilliant. So I actually got to see Phil. And on the very first Glass Harp album, there's at least two songs that are Christian tunes. And, you know, so yeah, there, there's stuff coming out of the Midwest at that period of time. And they were on a major label. I think it was Decca yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and if you look, you can you can still find the Glass Harp recordings out there. Obviously, they're on YouTube. Now, well, this is happening. Had Petra already from from that point? When did Petra get their first recording contract? Well, let's go back a little bit. Okay. We we started jamming together. It would have been late September, early maybe October of '72. Like I said, I had moved to Fort Wayne in September, late August, early September of '72. And the first gig that we ever did went through the Adams Apple. We did a high school assembly in Bryan, Ohio. <laughs> we were with Nancy Honeytree, a gentleman by the name of John Lloyd, who was the guy who put the Adams Apple together and was the director, and he has since gone on to be with the Lord. Amazing guy. And we didn't even have the name Petra. We were just kind of there. Wow. And Bob came up with the name Petra. Uh, probably shortly thereafter, and some of our first ever gigs would have been the fall of 1972 in the Fort Wayne area, and I think probably Adam's Apple. Wow. And when, were you guys headlining then? Did you did, did guys like Keggy cross your path that early? Well, it, what's bizarre is I do remember playing a, um, uh, they didn't call them festivals then, but it was a, outdoor Christian concert with a whole bunch of different acts. And this is like Phil had left um, Glass Harp and was doing solo stuff. And he played at this, this gig that uh, it wasn't, I don't think it was Petra, I think it was maybe one of the Rapture concerts where I got to see him and got to actually walk on stage and jam with him when I didn't know what I was doing at that point in time. But yeah, our, our path started to cross and then uh, after that, uh, I actually have a picture somewhere. I think we were playing in Van Wert, Ohio, in an outdoor gig where Phil was there. 
and we jammed with him. And while, while, while we're talking about legends, and I'm probably jumping times here, but didn't Petra open up for Larry Norman at one point? Yeah, that was our first, what I would call, really big show. Wow. And uh, we opened up for Norman. He was the big deal in Christian music at that point. And he was just working as a solo artist. And I mean, the guy had uh, had stage presence like you would not believe if you've ever seen Larry Norman. You know what I'm talking about. And so we, we regarded that as a kind of a big break. It's kind of our first really good concert in front of a huge audience. And it, I, I remember that. I, I think in total, I think we might have done concerts with Larry Norman. I can remember two at least. Maybe there was a third one. At this point during the first one, had Petra already re- recorded their first album? Not yet. What we did, we recorded the first album. It came out in 1974. It was actually recorded in December of 73 and not released until uh, 74. 74. And you go through all the recording, you get the contracts, all of a sudden you're on the road. How, how are you feeling at this point, knowing that you came out of a small town Indiana and now you're you're turning into one of the bigger Christian rock bear one of the first hard rock Christian bands that there are uh, I didn't look at it that way I mean at that point you know people have a misconception of touring I mean right now people think of this touring everybody's got this giant bus and you have an army of roadies and uh, everything's going great guns and nothing falls apart, nothing goes wrong. <laughs> that was not the case. We had a uh, beat-up old motorhome, pulled a trailer, and motorhomes back in the 1970s consisted of two types. One would be the Airstream type, where you could drive anywhere in any kind of climate, any kind of weather, and it functioned. And the other kind was the kind that you only took out during the nice weather about three months out of the year. That's the kind we had. <laughs> And we beat it into the ground. By the time we got rid of it, nothing worked. Is, is that what you had during the whole first go-round with the first album? Yeah, pretty much. Oh that my. was it. And um, I remember, oh gosh, we broke down so many places. Uh, we It wasn't with the motorhome, but we broke down in the Canadian Rockies once. Uh, <laughs> broke down on the Ohio Turnpike once. Um uh, yeah, it's just, it, you know, for anybody who's not a musician, you think, oh, touring, that's oh, it's so glamorous. No, uh-uh, no. You, uh, a lot of times you end up sleeping in your clothes and uh, keep McDonald's in business. <laughs> when, uh, by, by the time you're done promoting the first album, how was the general feeling from you and the rest of the guys? Were you happy to be doing what you were doing at at this point? Oh, yeah. We, we really felt we had something. I mean, the idea of, well, we're going to be big rock stars. Uh, I think in the back of everybody's mind, you think, yeah, man, I, I, you know, I want to be a rock star when I grow up. But, the, you know, the uh, nuts and bolts thing of touring on a, a band uh, at our level, we didn't have, even though Murr was part of Word, which was technically a major label, we didn't really get label support so we were kind of it was pretty much hand to mouth wow. as far as whatever money we made playing is what we had when it came to the second album was it the was the band ready to go into the was it the band's idea to go into the recording studio or did the label say it's time for another album well I'm, I'm not really clear on, on how the date was set up or not. We were ready. We, we, you know, Bob is a very uh, prolific, is the word I'm looking for, songwriter. And he was always writing. Greg was writing. I was just starting to dabble in it, although none of my stuff uh, made any of the albums back then. But um, we had the material, and we wanted to do a second album and kind of had to... Uh, there was a lot of behind-the-scenes negotiations to get us into the studio the second time. The, I, I love both albums uh, a lot. The, the second album kind of stands out a little bit more polished. I like the raw feel of the first album, my, myself, but the dual guitar leads and everything on the second album really stand out for me. And then 
of course, you have an addition to an, a new vocalist who's listed as a special guest. Yeah, that was um, the world's introduction to Greg Vols. And basically, he was not even a band member when we did the second album. It was just, uh, it was done at a place called Golden Voice Studios in a little dinky town called South Peak in Illinois. <clears throat> and uh, to give you an idea of how small this town was, you walk out the front door of the recording studio, and there's a cornfield. <laughs> I mean, it was a very small town, but the studio was really uh, incredible. And the guys who the guys who ran it, the studio was like a working example of their. They would build studios. They would build and design recording studios, and the, the studio was kind of like a working example of what they could do. Well, Vols had worked with these guys. He's from Illinois originally. I think Springfield. I'm not clear on the time, but I know he's from Illinois. And so he knew them. We had seen Greg play with his early band, E-Band. Mm -hmm. So we knew each other. And so the idea was to bring him in to guest vocal on some things, just to give the album a slightly different flavor. Uh, Steve Camp is even on a song as a background vocalist. And this is something that uh, a lot of people don't know, but I'm just going to say it. Uh, Bill Glover was, wasn't a band member at that time. He had left the band for personal reasons. We had gone through, in the five and a half years I was in Petro, we went through five drummers. And so when it came time to go into the studio, we did not have a drummer. We had fired one guy who wasn't working out. Uh, we had another guy in town, from town, in town here in Fort Wayne by the name of uh, Mark Richards, and he was with a progressive rock band called Ethos that were on Capitol Records. And he became he became a Christian, but he was involved with a a thing called the Way. So let's just say that doctrinally we didn't quite line up, but he was an incredible drummer. But his commitment to Ethos, he did some live shows with us. In in the space of a month, we lost a drummer. We brought on uh, Richards to do the live shows, hired Glover back because he knew all the songs we were going to record except one. Hmm. He knew everything except God Gave Rock and Roll because that was a new idea. And then, oh, and then I take it back. There was a, then a guy by the name of Chris Beckler joined the band right after we finished recording, and he was in the band uh, for a year. So we went through... Technically, four drummers in about less than two months. Now, I don't have a copy of the album with me, but on the back, on the credits, I know Bill is listed as a, a special guest, but wasn't Bob Rickman listed as a special guest? No. He was not? No. He was listed as being a friend. He was a friend. Yeah. Okay. That's what I get for not having my, my notes in front I, of me. I think that's what it was listed as, but yeah. he wasn't listed. As, he didn't play on the album. So. Okay, so the, the second album's out. You guys are still touring around it or traveling around in a uh, beat up, uh, beat well, up car. At and that trailer. time, at that time, we bought a box truck. You know, it's like one of those rider trucks. It's got a cab and then a long box on the back, and you could get from the cab to the back of the truck. And we went back about maybe five or six feet and built a wall, carpeted the whole thing, and put these racks up. Went to the Army Navy store and bought a couple stretchers. And you put these stretchers up there, and you could sleep a couple guys. And we built a little bench where you could keep the guitars. And the rest of the gear went into the back of the truck. And we managed to get all our stuff plus five guys in this truck. That's crazy. Yeah, that's what we had. It worked out pretty well. Now, now back then, did, were the bands responsible for their own PAs or did... Pretty much, pretty oh, wow. much. So it, it varied. It varied from gig to gig. I mean, we had a PA, but uh, some of the bigger concerts or sometimes... Um, if you do uh, something that a promoter had been put working on putting together, he would provide the PA, oh. uh, you know, a local sound reinforcement company. But it 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 was both ways. When you were to, when you were doing your dates on the second album, was Greg Volts touring with you at that time, or was he just on the album? He started to tour with us. Uh, we picked up a few dates here and there, and uh, we kind of talked the idea about. Um, Okay, I mean, this guy's such a good vocalist, and it's really going to help the band out. Because one of the, 
You know, I'm not knocking Bob Hartman, but let's face it, uh, Bob did not have the best voice. None of us could really sing. Uh, I can't sing. Well, I can't carry a tune in a bucket with a lid welded shut. <laughs> um, Greg has probably the best voice of the four original guys. Bill Glover can sing a little bit, but his range is just, he doesn't have much of a range. But um, it was kind of decided that, okay, if we're going to take this to the next level, we're going to really need a, a good front man. And so and since he, we knew him, he knew us, he knew some of the material, it was a no-brainer. All right. We're all over the place touring with, uh, doing, doing gigs with Come and Join Us. We're at the end of the run. What happens with Petra? Uh, that, that is, that's a long convoluted tale. Let's just, without going, you know, pointing fingers or sounding angry or bitter, let's just say it was a management decision that changed the band at that time. Um, different goals for different people? That, that'd be a, a kind way of saying it. Okay. Yeah, okay. Let's just say that uh, the manager that we had at the time, some people know who I'm talking about, I'm not going to mention names, uh, he had this opinion that we were working for him, he wasn't working for us. And I bumped heads with him more than once. And it was just kind of one of those things where uh, he had a different vision for the band than what some of us did, and so it was just a parting of the ways. Well, the, the cool thing about Petra, and it's easy to say this now because I can see uh, the, the vision now from all these years, but Petra was more than a band. Petra has always been a big ministry. And and I've joked with, with the guys before that I, I believe 26 members altogether. Oh, I've tried to count. It's either 23 or 26. I've tried to count, and I, I lost. I even asked Bob one day. Uh, I, I'm a freelance journalist, and I wrote an article when they did the... Um, the first time Petra broke, <laughs> or the second time when they did the, um, they did that live album, two thousand three, two thousand four. What was that called? Farewell. Oh yeah, the farewell, the farewell tour, the one John. Was I on. did a review on that, and I based it a lot on what uh, some of the review, other reviews were, and what some of the fans were saying. And so, let's just say. I was honest. I wasn't highly critical of it, but I wasn't, hey, this is the best thing since sliced bread. I just said, you know, a lot of people were kind of disappointed with the album because it's more acoustic. They were expecting something different. And But prior to that, I had asked Bob, how many people have been in the band throughout the years? And he said, well, I don't think anybody really needs to know that. <laughs> you know? It makes it sound like nobody can get along with each other, but that's the nature of bands. Right. I mean, a lot of people don't even know the Beatles started out as a five-piece band. Right. You know, can right. you name the original members? Huh? How many of you out there can do that? Huh? <laughs> well, I mean, it goes back to saying Petra's still doing her thing. Bob is still touring with John Schlitt. They're doing the 50th anniversary right now. And and like I mentioned earlier, it, it's a ministry. It's more than a band. I mean, there's so many lives have been changed because of of the ministry. And with Bob having the vision to keep the ministry going after Come and Join Us, I think that speaks volumes. It, it does. It really does. And uh, there's a lot of times I basically can't even listen to the first two albums because I, I, I'm trashing myself here, people. I'm not trashing the band members or the band, but I couldn't play worth squat back then. I was not that good of a musician. And so every time I hear them, I think, oh my heavens, geez, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? But um, just, it, it, it's just amazing what has happened. And those first, especially the first album, um, I have a love-hate relationship with the internet, <laughs> but, especially Facebook, but we're probably going to get shot down for this one. But um, a lot of times people will, post things about that first album and say, you know, this is my introduction to Christian music. Or this is the only, uh, my parents didn't like rock music, but they'd let this in the house. And it made a major difference in my life. And I don't know how many times I've, I have encountered that. And I, I know I, I'm judging the album from my playing, not from anybody else's perspective, but that album, that album had a lot of impact uh, for a lot of people. 
And it's still out there. I, I found a copy in a used record store a couple months back. Well, it was, let's say, like we mentioned earlier, it was really the first hard rock album. And for back then, I guess that would be considered a hard rock that was Christian. Yeah, it, it was. And the one thing that set Petra apart was the dual lead guitar thing between Bob and Greg. We were always kind of, people would look at us and sort of uh, compare us to Southern rock bands because we had two incredibly good lead guitarists. That, and these guys would work out their harmony leads. I mean, they spent uh, a song that would last maybe three or four minutes. These guys would spend a couple of hours getting those, just those solos down right. And that that's how much work went into it. And it seems like the older that Greg, Greg and Bob got, the better they got because they still got their chops. Oh, both of them do. Both of them do. And I'm, I'm honored to be working with Greg. Greg's on... Um, Probably uh, on my new album called uh, Trophy Hunting for Unicorns, Salt's album, sec- second album. There's a thing called Three Nails that he just does this lead solo in it. I just, it's, Greg, you got to play on this. And that's a super special song because it's it's got Petra all over it. You got John on bass, you got Greg on guitar, and you got John Schlitt on lead vocals. Yeah, and, and Greg, uh, if you, some of you might have heard it, if you've not heard it, Greg did that in two passes. Yeah. And I just said, you know, come on, just just play. And I just want you to, you know, this is rock and roll. And I, I had to talk him into, Greg spends a lot of time playing a uh, Fender uh, Stratocaster. Yeah, he's a Strat man. Well, I asked him, I said, I, I want a real, you know, um, in-your-face rock sound. So uh, can you do this on a Les Paul? So he showed up with a tiny little amp, a little Black Star amp. And his Les Paul, and just went nuts. Yeah, yeah, he nailed it. He did. All right, so you've moved on. Everybody's moved on. Bob's got the ministry still going with Petra. All these years later, you've got the formation of the band that we know as GHF. Mm-hmm. How did all that come about? What is GHF, and why is there no D in GHF? Well, okay, um, GHF originally. I was living in Tennessee. I moved to Tennessee in 87, I believe it was, and lived there until 2003. But uh, right after I had left the area, I guess Greg and Bill Glover were working together with a guy named Jerry Farrington, who is on the Volume 1 GHF Mm -hmm. stuff. And Jerry is, uh, he's a Christian. He's somebody that all of us around here know. He's one of these musicians that is world-class and yet has never really gotten the recognition that he's due. Uh, I was doing studio stuff here in town, uh, just playing on commercials, stuff like that, and showed up for a session one day, and Jerry showed up. He pulled an acoustic guitar out and pulled out the sheet music. He said, this is a, I think he said, it's a Bach cantata that was transcribed for guitar, and I just got it and want to see if I can play it. Got it out and just ripped through it. And I said, what in the world? He said, well, I wasn't that good. I kind of messed up this passage here. And I was a little too slow here. And that signature change here, I just kind of didn't get that. He's reading this stuff and playing it on acoustic guitar. I mean, he's that kind of musician. And he's just, he was the F in GHF. It was uh, Glover, Hogan, and Farrington. Well, uh, he left the band, and in 2003, I moved back to Ohio. My father had passed away. Both my, my mom died in 2000, my dad died in 2003. I inherited a house that was paid for. I don't have brothers and sisters, and, so, and properties weren't selling. So what am I going to do with this house? So I, I came back. I'd gone through a divorce. I'd gone through... I, I, I'm just, you know, since... We're going to be honest here. I, I really bottomed out when I was in Tennessee. I, I backslid, and I just figured, okay, this is a good chance to start over, and the Lord really showed me, all right, you idiot, you're getting a second chance. A lot of people don't get that. Don't screw this up. So I no more than came back, and Greg and Bill contacted me and said, hey, uh, got this band, need a bass player, want to do it? Okay, so well, we can do some old Petra stuff. Okay, and I started working with Dan Liu, who uh, 
the closest thing I have to a brother in this lifetime. Uh, we both saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. <laughs> We're that old. And, and Dan is just an amazing guitarist. He's, he's in salt and probably, probably my best friend in this life. But uh, anyway, when I moved back, I started working with Greg and, and uh, Bill again and also started working with Dan Liu. And they put together, uh, Greg and Bill had already had the band and they already had the name GHF. So I think it was Bill came up with the idea that GHF stands for God Has Forgiven which is scripturally accurate. And the first gig that I played with them was up in Michigan, and we recorded it. And it's out on a very hard-to-find thing called Honestly Live because it was it was kind of recorded by accident. They just ran a feed into the soundboard, so there's no way to balance anything, no way to you know go back and fix mistakes. And we called it Honestly Live because... We left it. had to leave the mistakes in. <laughs> but, it was honestly live. Yeah, it was. And uh, here's a bizarre thing. It's the first night I met my my uh, my current wife. Ah. No, I take that back. I take that back. No. Wait a minute. I, I'm getting older. You, Oklahoma. Well, we're just gonna let this. No. No. Uh, one of the first the first time Petra was gonna call it quits with the um, farewell tour, the first gig that we did was in Angola with um, the original members. Okay. And it was Petra, whoever was in the band at that time, and the original members, and then Sean Browning's band, um, Migraines. He didn't have uh, Grave Robber yet. Okay. He had Migraines. And so, um, that's where I met my my wife for the first time right. and yeah. what happened at the uh what happened at the michigan gig later was uh like i said i'm a freelance journalist i wrote an article about the reunion and it was published in ccm magazine you know, back back in the days when we had hard copy publications they were supposed to send me a copy for my files i never got one so um, I discovered that there's like a whole you know boatload of these Petra fan groups out there. So I put something out on you know on, on a bunch of fan groups. Hey, uh, I was supposed to get a copy of this magazine. I'd like to have it. Uh, or if you, if you want a part of the magazine, I'll pay for it. If you make me a copy, I'll pay you for that. Well, my wife Jennifer showed up at the uh, Michigan gig with a copy. And nice guy that I am, I asked her for her phone number. <laughs> and that would have been 2004, and we got married in 2006. So I, I refer to my wife as the best royalty I ever got from Petra. Well, that's a cool story. Yeah. So. so anyway, yeah, that's... But GHF functioned for, I think, till maybe 2013, on and off, and yeah. then Glover moved to Florida. There's been a couple of reu reunion shows, but that's really it. And it kind yeah. of a logistic thing said no more. Yeah, it was just kind of impossible to have a band. I mean, when we're all a bunch of rich, uh, broke slobs, none of us are rich. We can't afford to travel just to rehearse. Yeah. It was just impractical. I mean, Greg and I live 40 miles from each other. No big deal. Yeah. I'm going to be rehearsing with him tomorrow after this, after this interview. But... Uh, it just was not workable anymore, and so it, it was time to pull the plug on that one. Well, I'm going to throw one at the people I bet that I bet they don't know exist. You mentioned that uh, honestly, live was hard to hard to come by. You recorded another album while in Nashville that is very hard to come by. Uh, A little prog rock thing that you did. Oh, Return from Reality. Yeah, I, I'm playing in a kind of a fusion jazz duo with this lady guitarist, and they, it was instrumental except for one tune on there, and it was just, yeah, off-the-wall stuff, it, jazz fusion. It's it's good stuff, and if you can find it... I have copies. You can't find it anywhere. Yeah. Get in touch with me. I'll sell you one. <laughs> so. and how can they get in touch with you? Uh, I, okay, I, I, I can do this. Uh, just John DeGroff... P.O. Box 1493, Warsaw, Indiana, 46581. And my email, 
D-E-G-R-O-F-F-J-O-H-N at Hotmail.com. It's, I'm telling you, if you love prog rock, jazz fusion, John's playing, just contact him and get this stuff. Well, I have another one called Demos and Other Moments, Yeah, which was about 20 years of just doing demos and never having an outlet for it. And I finally, now it's, it's inexpensive. There's all kinds of companies out there that will duplicate stuff. So I put the money together and gathered up all these tapes, everything from... Uh, have you seen the, you know, it's like those little, uh, answer, answering machine tapes. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I had some music on one or two of those cassette tapes, other CDs and got it mastered and put out a thing called demos and other moments. And it's everything, um, Bill Glover's on it. Dan Lou's on it. A uh, really good jazz guitarist by the name of Denny Giosa is on a tune or two. Um, there's a, country song on it <laughs> there's just some off the wall stuff on it now to jump forward let's just go back a couple years you put together actually it's been more than a couple years now man yeah it has been the, the, the first salt album yeah how did that come about or were you just ready to say hey i need my own album now yeah well that was part of it uh i'm really into prog rock and and jazz and music you can't dance to and i'm i'm not I'm not, like I say, much of a vocalist. I have tried to be a vocalist, and I finally hit me. DeGroff, you can't sing. You can do some harmonies. Just shut up and play bass. So, okay, fine. I will do that. Uh, and it was just, I have written a lot of stuff. I'm a very frustrated songwriter. I mean, having been around Bob and Greg, I've always thought, I, well, I've got something I could say. I, I've got things I want to do, but I never had an outlet for it. And the type of music I'm into is, is progress well, I hate the word progressive, but prog rock. You know, I actually saw somebody post something, prog rock, and they spelled the city. Prog- <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, wow, okay, so okay. much of the education in our country, but um, I, I didn't say that. I'm sorry, okay. But it was just one of those things where I, I had been noodling around coming up with all this stuff, and I figured I need an outlet for it. I'm going to go crazy if I don't get an outlet. And technically, I was playing in cover bands. I am still playing in cover bands. But the stuff I was doing is not the kind of thing that you could do in clubs. And I've got to do this. i got to prove to myself I can do this. And when I did the first one, it's got its flaws, and I figured I can do this better. I'm going to do this better. <laughs> so we got a different uh, different studio, and I kind of tried to function as a producer on the first one, and that is not my uh, that's not my forte. Oh. Um, so got a very good producer by the name of Tim Bouchon, who worked with us, and I got uh, Sean Browning at this time owned Rottweiler Records. And he gave me a shot at uh, releasing no, the album. And that's on the second album. Yeah, it's just, well, both albums. Okay, the fir- right, yeah. And, uh, Eddie engineered the first. The yeah, first. Eddie engineered the first. And Tim Bouchon, for those of you who might not be familiar, uh, Tim in the 1980s had a band called Love War. He was produced by the Elefante brothers, John and Dana. Wow, okay. And that's where he learned his craft. He is a brilliant brilliant producer he's got ears like you would not believe and his recording techniques i mean the minute you walk in there and start playing he leaves the he leaves it running you know, because you might find something that's just really brilliant that you can't do again he's just a great guy to work with he's also a baptist pastor i still like him but he's he's a baptist <laughs> pastor uh so he, he's a very uh highly intelligent highly gifted musician in his own right and he's a joy to work with and uh so we got the first two, first two assault albums. Um, John Schlitz on the first one, and John the second one as well, and is on the second one. Hogue is on the second one on, on the second one on two on two tracks. And now we got Sean Browning doing some lead vocals. Yeah, um, I you know I, w- I want to take it forward. I I've got enough material for a third album, and I want to do a third album. Uh, I love John Schlitz to death. He's expensive to work with. I'm just going to put that out there. And I think, and, and, you know, uh, I just simply 
there's it was illogical to try to put a band together with him because for for one thing he doesn't have the time. He's busy doing how many projects is he in? He's in a lot of Sinners and Saints, Sekulow band. He's got yeah, he's got Union Sinners and Saints, Jay Sekulow. He's he's got, got his the, own thing. Got, occasionally. The, got the tour. His, his tour with uh, the 50, 50th anniversary of, with Petra right yeah, now. He, John, John is always doing something. He's always doing something. And so trying, and he lives in Tennessee. And everybody else, Dan Liu is the one who is the farthest away uh, from the rest of us. And that's a two-hour drive. So it's impractical as much as I would love to work with Mr. Schlitt. But uh, it's impractical. And Sean Browning is the guy who uh, owned Rottweiler Records. He had sold the label. Um, I'm playing with him in a. Uh, I'm playing with him in a Irish punk band called the Mighty McGuigans. <laughs> and so we have we've been on stage together. And I, I started really paying attention to how he uh, interacts with an audience. And his his vocal range is he's, he's not John Schlitt, but he has an incredibly good voice. And he's a very good front man, and that's what we needed, because the rest of us in Salt, uh, between the keyboard player, John McCorkle, and Dan Liu on guitar, and myself, we all kind of have the same personality, which is just, we're not the life of the party, okay? And then drummer Curtis George, who is the young one, he's young at 30, and the rest of us are a bunch of old guys. Curtis is technically a jazz drummer. He's he's Buddy Rich reincarnated. Yeah, he kind of is. He, he's just phenomenal. But uh, being the drummer, and he's not a vocalist either, we needed somebody who could be center stage. The cool thing about Sean is he can do his stuff like he did with Grave Robber. He can rock, but he can do rockabilly. He can, Yeah, <laughs> we, we got a rockabilly tune called Anachronistic Anachronism. Now, Dan Liu wrote the music for it and came up with that title. And it originally existed as an instrumental. And we we recorded it, and it sounds like something Stray Cats would do. Yeah. And I, I was playing some, before the album was released, we were still in the recording process, I was playing some, some tracks for Sean to say, well, this is what we're doing. And he heard anachronistic, that's hard to pronounce, and said, man, I really love that, but it sounds like it needs vocals. I said, well, I'll tell you what, I didn't write it, Dan did. So how about put the two of you guys together and see what you can do? And so Sean, working off the title, what is an anachronism, you know? Uh, Working off that, he wrote the lyrics, and I wrote the last verse, and it's just, it's really fun. I mean, you hear all this prog rock and jazz, and right in the very smack middle of the album, (laughs) it fades in, you hear this rockabilly thing, do the song, all this solo stuff, and we we didn't record keyboards with it, but there's going to be keyboards live with it now. Cool. And then it fades out. It's like it comes in, does its thing, and leaves, you know, kind of like the musical version of Cousin Eddie. It just kind of shows up. And then follow, right after that, it's followed by one of the other tunes that Greg Hogue plays on called Conversation, which is just pure smooth jazz. So you go from rockabilly to smooth jazz. You you never know what you're going to get with a John DeGroff project. Well, and that's that's prog rock. I mean, you do it. If there are rules in prog rock, I don't know what they are. Right. You seem to be able to use anything you want to, uh, you know, and, and get away with it. If... For those of you who are into uh, bands like Genesis, the first Peter Gabriel solo album after he left Genesis, uh, there's a thing called Excuse Me, which if you listen to it, it's got barbershop quartet harmony. And it's got kind of like a Dixieland horn section behind it. Mm-hmm. And here's this guy who just came from Genesis. So it's any, you can use anything you want to in prog rock. Which is why I like it. Now let's jump up to now. If you listen to my interview with Greg Hogue, you know about the new project that John is doing with Greg. I'd like to talk a little bit about the upcoming concert that you're going to be doing in Michigan. Okay. Um, 
you're you're with our good friend Nancy Honeytree. Yeah. Who's is the Jesus people as far as I as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah, she's she's she, she, her voice is still there. And, and you guys are gonna get blessed beyond words when you hear her new music that she's recording. John and I just got a sneak preview and it's a wow factor. But well, in fact, she invited Greg and I to play on it to do it live. Yeah, and so tell us about this show that you're going to be doing in Michigan. Well, uh, it's uh, September 30th. Uh, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know the venue yet. But we're gonna, I'm going to be posting stuff uh, in regard to this because I guess they've got their promotion out. I wanted to wait until like maybe the first of August before. I would promote it from our end because if you you promote something too far out, it gets lost. Well, in the, the good shuffle. news is by the time this airs, you are the first podcast in August. Okay, well, the show is um, when Petra started. There was a coffee house up in Saginaw, Michigan that we played at a bunch, and the people up there were uh, just kind of like the people from the Adams Apple, just good, good folk that uh, you know came to the Lord during what was called the Jesus Revolution. And so a lot of these people are, they're of the same age group, they're of the same time frame, and they wanted to do a um, kind of a reunion thing of their own. And so they immediately thought about Petra. And I I can't remember who they contacted first. I I think my wife told me, I have a tendency not to look at my Facebook page a lot. She said, well, you're getting all these notices. You need to check this stuff out. And... They contacted us through the Salt page, and I guess they contacted Greg to kind of come up and, tr- and do some music. Now, I don't know how they contacted Nancy, mm-hmm. but uh, started talking to them. And what they want to do was uh, there's going to be some local bands and then Nancy, and they didn't want to give like each uh, the band I have with Greg, which we might as well tell them the title. Yeah. I mean. The name of the band is the Hogue de Groff Reunion Band. I didn't want to claim, put my name in there, but he wanted me to. So that right. is the Hogue de Groff Reunion Band and, and Salt. So came up with the idea of for a solid hour, both bands will be on stage. Salt will do a half hour, and then immediately the Hogue de Groff thing will finish the hour out. And... The Hogue de Groff thing is uh, we're doing a lot of old Petra. We're doing some secular stuff. We're going to do our we're going to do the Petra version of God Gave Rock and Roll to you. That's awesome. So yeah, I had to go back and relearn all that stuff. But Salt's going to open up with six tunes from the second Salt album, and uh, and Greg is going to end up playing uh, on three nails. So we've we've worked that out. So it, it's going to be interesting. And then, like I said, Nancy, just today, offered Greg and I a chance to play on one of her new tunes. Yeah, that's... To do it live. And it's, uh, after hearing it, it's, uh, I don't know how to verbally describe it, and I'm not even going to try. It's just wonderful. It's, Nancy is blessed. Yeah. Yeah, man, her, her lyrics are amazing. She's working with some incredible people in Nashville to put this new music together, and it's, uh, it'll be an honor to, uh, to hear this. I was beyond honored to hear it live because or to hear the recording john and i were two of the first people to hear this so it was it was pretty special yeah it was it's impressive yeah it's just flat out good stuff you think anybody will shoot me for saying phil cagey's on it <sighs> that's right yeah yeah he's all over that all that or all uh, over uh, that song on the song we heard phil cagey's yeah. on it i uh and as far as I know, Billy Smiley, Billy Smiley produced it. He produced it, and so, when Billy gets his hands on something, yeah, it's it's ultra special. It was it, it's a good. And Nancy just out of the blue looked at Greg and I said, "Would you guys like to play on this? Do it live." Yeah, I said okay, fine. Send me a chart. <laughs> so, all right, we've got through everything. We just covered a lot of ground. What? is up next after the Michigan gig. Is there going to be another Salt? Are there going to be more gigs? Well, right now, yeah. I, I My goal this year was to get Salt up and running as a live band. And uh, I'm just going to put this out there. I need a booking agent. <laughs> uh, the one thing that I hate doing as a musician is booking a band. I, I, I'm not good at it. I don't like doing it. And so trying to find gigs that are worth our time. And I, I hate to talk about money, but it, I'm unfortunately at gas at three and four bucks a gallon. We, we can't do it for free. Yeah. 
So uh, need to find a booking agent who can help us. I want to do some more gigs before the year's out. And uh, Curtis and I live, well, pretty much in the same town. We try to get together once a week and work on new stuff. And Salt's going to start doing rehearsals for the Michigan gig, but also rehearsals for the new album, which I have a working title I'm not going to talk about, but uh, I want to write a prog rock epic. And um, John McCorkle, the keyboard player, has told me he's got a couple things he'd like to do, which are probably going to be smooth jazz. I know Dan's got... He's got other ideas, too, Dan, the, the guitar player. So uh, it's going to be some interesting music, and Sean is going to be the vocalist. So uh, it's just a matter of, uh, unfortunately, with everything else in life, it's a matter of money and getting into the studio. It's, it's, it's always money. And to keep track, um, Salt does have its own Facebook page. Yeah, <laughs> we have we have a, it's called Salt Official Facebook page. Uh, there is a, um, I think it's under John DeGroff and Friends, there is a YouTube channel with 34 different videos, a little bit of everything. I interview everybody who played on it, uh, interviewed uh, Tim, the producer. Uh, my wife came up with the idea of, well, why don't you talk about all the instruments you use? So I have uh, hauled out all the guitars I played. And oh, this one, I have a seven-string bass. Yeah. Because four strings is not enough. No, four strings is not enough. You know, hey, this is 21st century. Um, <laughs> I have a seven-string Ibanez bass that's gotten over 12,000 views. And you have an incredible custom-made bass. Yes, I do. Uh, my, once again, my my wife has a cousin named Kevin Butts, lives in Memphis, has a guitar company called Killer Bee Guitars. And when we, when my wife and I first got married, I, I met him and he said, hey, I'd love to build you a bass. And I said, well, can't really afford it right now. And so eventually I got to the point where I could. And he made a six-string bass for me, neck through, uh, Bartolini pickups. It's, I, I love the thing. It's, it's great. And it's, uh, he said he will never try to build another one. It was a real pain to get everything to function. <laughs> All right, we're at that point of the show where I ask my guest my favorite question in the world. You're in Santa's sleigh. You get a wish. Being a musician. Do I have to sit on your lap? You do not sit oh, on my lap. Good, thank you. I will push you off my lap. It's funny how that works. <laughs> All right. no, normally I do these on the phone, but John and I are actually together doing this live because, well, I'm in Fort Wayne today, and it worked out well. So, dead or alive... Who do you wish you could play with? Okay, this is going to surprise a lot of people. Robert Fripp of wow. King Crimson. Like I said, uh, like I've been saying, I'm into prog rock. The first King Crimson album came out in 1969. So did the first Yes album, but I didn't become a Yes fan until I heard their fifth studio album, which was Close to the Edge. But the first King Crimson album it was the one with a really weird-looking red cover called Court of the Crimson King. And bear in mind, I was just in high school at that point, and I read this review of it that basically said, these guys don't sound like anybody else. I said, okay, I'm going to check this out. I was, well, back, back then, growing up, the 45 record was the mainstay of the music business, pretty much. And when... Friends would come over, a whole stack of 45s. I was the weird guy who always flipped it over and played the B-side. I mean, you know what the A-side, you know what the hit sounds like. It's all over the radio. Right. What else do these guys do? Right. Because every now and then, you'd find some real gem, real wonderful piece of music that hardly anybody knew about. And so I just always was fascinated by music that was just a little off the beaten path. And once I... Heard King Crimson for the first time. It was like, holy crap, are you kidding me? This is amazing. And so um, I have followed their career quite well. And what is uh, unique, uh, a couple years ago for my birthday, Curtis, the drummer, Curtis George, got tickets to see King Crimson's 50th anniversary tour. Wow. And we went to Chicago, and it was absolutely mind-boggling. That had to be epic. It was. Three drummers. Jeez. 
Tony Levin on bass. It was it was great. It was amazing. But that's a lot of drool on um, stage. Fripp has inspired me as a bass player because his take on the instrument is so unique and his style is so unique. And he doesn't write, you know, three chord stuff. He just has a real it's kind of jazz, but he kind of takes it to the next level. And so it's just to listen to him, I keep thinking, how could I replicate that on bass? And I actually have an idea for the nice. next album. Nice. That is, uh, that was. Well, we got cut off there because uh, apparently there's a time limit, but we're going to go on just for a couple quick seconds and wrap things up. Robert Fripps, the, the, dream, the dream musician. Um, just one last question I had for you. Uh, on the first two albums that you played on with Petra, was there one song that stood out for you that said, man, I really like what I did here, but I, I'd like to go do it one more time and just pump it a little bit harder? Well, on the first album, uh, a thing called I'm Not Ashamed, and it's kind of got kind of a walking jazz yeah, bass part. great and song. I wasn't listening to jazz at that point in my life, and I don't know. Uh, I think Greg gave me some suggestions on what to play, and I just kind of went with it. And I still, to this day, enjoy playing that song. And it's really the only one where I think I did incredibly well on, That's... if I do say so. And on the second album, I'll be flat out honest, everybody loves God Gave Rock and Roll to You. That song has been done to death. And I Salt has Salt does a version of it live, where we take the Argent version and stick "Hold Your Head Up" in the middle of it and turn it into a ten-minute saga. It's interesting, mm -hmm. but the Petra version is um, what's interesting. Uh, Bob and Greg came up with the intro to that, which is I guess is taken from the acoustic guitar part of Argent, but um, the chorus is pretty much the same in both versions, but. There's some different chord structures between Argent and between the way Hartman and Hoag uh, put it together for the Petra album. Uh, but that that's one song I, I really, you know, if I don't have to play it, I don't have to play it. But, <laughs> but people love it, and it's the only thing on the second album I think I did very well on. That's awesome. Well, we've been on here... Long enough, according to uh, according to the uh, recording app that I use. So, John, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I know that our uh, our listeners learned a lot about you and obviously the the Petra history and everything that you're doing now. So, hey, thanks for being here. And uh, one last word. Well, thank you, Santa. I've been good. <laughs> Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens in December. You know, cookies and beer this year. Uh, all right. Okay. Uh, oh my! Oh my! Oh my! Right. See, it's all. It, it's not the drummer; it's the bass player yeah, every right. time. Anyway, thanks for uh, listening, and we'll see you next week on Slaying It with Santa Rob. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for listening to uh, today's awesome conversation with uh, John DeGroff. I hope that you uh, learned a lot about John's career, whether it be from uh, his early days with Petra, his uh, project uh, with his band Salt, or his new project with uh, Greg Hoke. Uh, there's there's a lot of good music that's coming that's going to be coming really soon from uh, from John. Just stay tuned. Head over to his Facebook page. Check out the Band Salts Facebook page. And, uh, you know, just be on the lookout for new stuff. And as always, if anybody has a comment or a, an idea for, uh, for Slaying It with Santa Rob, you can email me direct at santarobpodcast at gmail.com. Also, please head over to Facebook. Look up the Slaying It with Santa Rob Facebook page. Like it. And uh, keep up to date on what's going on in the world with uh, the podcast. And uh, as always, thank you, uh, Brett Christmer. Brett Christmer's Mustache Wax. You can find him at bscenterprises.com. And 
use the discount code Santa Rob when you place your order. He's got all kinds of great products uh, uh, for mustache wax, uh, amazing different scents that uh, that he has. I use a hot butter drum that uh, that he makes for me that I, I just love. And also HotspotCollectiblesAndToys.com. Whether you're into into collecting pops or Hot Wheels or action figures, video games, whatever. HotspotCollectiblesAndToys.com has what you're looking for. And if they don't have it right now, chances are that they will later. So anyway, head over there, use discount code SANTAROB, and you will also receive a discount of a, of a 15% there. So thanks for being here, and we will see you next week on Slaying It with Santa Rob. Thank you.